Hi, I'm James. And I'm Cairo. And this is Who Cares Wins, the podcast sharing inspirational stories about people who are caring for someone they love. Each week we're joined by a new guest who shares their story, and we try to do it with a smile on our face. But we never shy away from some of the darker moments. And if you find these stories helpful, please do subscribe to them and rate the podcast on your podcast provider. It makes a real difference to enable us to share these stories with people who are very often in a really challenging situation. Right, James, let's get on with the show. Hello, friends. It's James here. Uh, we're really pleased to have you back with us for the Who Cares Wins podcast. It's a really tough time for a lot of us at the moment. And I'm recording this just at the end of Carers Week, where there was some research that showed there are 4.5 million people who have become a carer over the last few months. So even when it's feeling really tough, I think it's really important that we remember that we're not alone, that there are plenty of other people who are sharing the challenges that we're going through. And if you'd like any extra support as we're going along, please do pop over to the Mobilize website, mobilizeonline.co.uk. You can sign up to our e-support package and uh, we run some virtual cuppers uh, where you can join some other people, some other carers from across the country uh, in a, uh, an online cupper. And also some coaching sessions as well that are freely available and have made a real impact for a lot of carers already. That's mobilizeonline.co.uk. But now, and the reason you're here, is for the first episode of a new series of Who Cares Wins. And today we're hearing from Penny. Penny Windsor is a journalist. She's an Aussie by birth, but now lives in London. And Cairo sat down on a little bit of a, a remote interview chat uh, about her book and her experience, and particularly their shared experience of both being uh, carers to their mothers uh, at points in their lives. And I'll let him uh, take over from here. The only thing I would say is that we do have a couple of conversations about suicide in this interview. And I know that that is a complex thing for a lot of people in our community. So I wanted to let you know before we get there. So over to Penny. I'm a carer to my 10-year-old son, who Arthur, who is autistic and has learning difficulties. I was also a young carer to my mum when I was a teenager uh, who had severe depression and she died by suicide when I was 22. The book really came from, really actually it was a conversation I had. I'm, I'm from Australia originally and I went back to Australia and um, I saw a very old friend of mine who I've known all my life her mother has Alzheimer's and it was quite early onset Alzheimer's. So she's in quite late stages now. Her dad is her mum's main carer, but she also helps out quite a lot. And we were having a glass of wine, chatting about our days. And we were actually just having a really big laugh about how similar our days sometimes looks with her supporting her mum with Alzheimer's and me supporting my disabled son. And actually out of that conversation, I realized, you know, these are the conversations I want to have. I really connect with other carers of all kinds. Um, we might be in some really different situations, but actually we've got loads of similarities as well. And so much of what I learned from supporting my mum has influenced how I am as a parent now to a disabled child as well um, in lots of different ways. And so really that's where the book came from. Is the book really aimed at carers or, or is it more for you know people who maybe have a, a carer in their in their friendship group or their or their family 
Well, firstly, I was writing, when I first started writing, I thought this, I had this image in my mind of another carer who was perhaps me five years earlier, who didn't really necessarily have anyone to talk to about these things, about all the emotions that came up. It was the thing, I, it was the book I was looking for when my son was first diagnosed. Mm. So that was my initial thought when I started writing it. But you know, what was interesting is that as I went on writing it, that actually changed a little bit. I still really want carers to read it because I think it's so vital for us to see other carers thriving. You know, because mm. I interviewed a lot of carers and actually they are really, you know, a lot of them are really thriving in quite challenging circumstances. But as I was writing, I realized that it was much bigger than that. You know, it's a book that you could give to someone else to help them understand your situation a bit better. But also, even more than that, I realized I really want professionals to read it. I really mm. want professionals who deal with carers day in, day out to read it. And I think what really happened is actually Lucy, this friend that I was chatting to, my old friend, um, I, in- I ended up interviewing her dad, David, for the book. Um, and he's a former GP. And he'd only just, just he's only very recently retired. He was a GP for 50 years. And he said to me something that I just, it completely changed the way I looked at the at the book, which is that, you know, as a former GP, he had absolutely no idea what it was like. He had no Mm -hmm. idea what it was like caring for someone. And he really, he really regrets not knowing. You know, he said Mm -hmm. all of those years I was sat in my office concentrating fully on my patients. And I never really gave a thought to the person that was coming in the room with them, the carer that was supporting Mm -hmm. them. And he said, you know, it's a big regret of his that he didn't understand that earlier. And for me, that was such a turning point in what, how I saw the book, you know, this idea that we can, these, these stories are not just for each other, for other carers. These are really for a wider community who really, we really need their support. We really Mm. need the support of professionals as well as the support of, of the, of society all around us. I think that's that's so interesting and and actually definitely picks up on, on some of the things that I've experienced both, but also some of the reasons that, you know, at the heart of what Mobilize is doing, you know, I think actually, strategies to deal with professionals is something that comes up quite often how many times we speak to carers and they're saying you know whether it's speaking to the local council whether it be the GP and they're just not getting the access that they deserve or entitled Mm. to and actually you know knowing even the words to use when you speak to whatever it may be is so important and how your your son how how is he how is that going Good, actually. Um, we're still in lockdown as we're recording this in London, essentially, mm-hmm. sort of a, an eased lockdown, but he's actually remained at school. So that's been really helpful. Um, although he was at home for a month because um, we had to self-isolate for a couple of weeks because we had contact mm-hmm. with somebody and then um, we had the Easter holidays. And that was really dreadful, actually. It was really, really dreadful. Mm-hmm. It was too many changes for him at once. It's too intense for him to be inside a small house. You know, we lost obviously all our playgrounds and stuff and things like that where we, we really rely on going out of the house and doing activities to structure his weekends even. And so to have four weeks straight without structure was really challenging. So it's been a really challenging year. But in general, yeah, I mean, I think before all this, um, I mean, generally things were going pretty well. I mean, it's taken, you know, as anyone who has a disabled family member, it takes years to get everything in place Mm. to kind of feel like you have support around you years and years. And I think that's what's been so scary about this time really is to have all of those things taken away in in a 24 hour period we lost our paid carer who's unfortunately still ill with coronavirus we lost school initially uh, and we didn't know whether he was going to give him be given a place back again and everything really we lost everything within a really tiny space of time and I think 
I've spoken to a number of carers about this actually about how actually how traumatic that is after years of you know often most of my friends have been to court to get what they need um in tribunals Mm. and have had lawyers and you know to have years of fight go into something and then to lose it all is really devastating and I don't think it can really be underestimated I think you know in the UK um you know there was a lot of talk about disabled children um being given the support they need throughout Mm. the lockdown and and it really hasn't happened my son just happens to go to a really fantastic school and they've gone above and beyond and I think they have the most Mm. students out of any school in the whole country attending at the moment but you know that's not the case for most of the carers that I know who have disabled children It's it's a challenging it's a very challenging year and I think I'm probably amongst one of the more privileged people at the moment because we do have some support in the form of school which is not just that he's out of the house for five hours a day. It's that his whole rest of his 24 hours is better because of the structure school can provide and the yeah. space and the movement and all the kind of sensory input they do um, and the and the routine and all of those things make his life better throughout the whole day, not just the time mm. he's at school. There's time things you just have to be thankful for such such small things. And it was actually, I was I was talking to a couple of my, my closer friends who are, who are carers and and to a certain extent, they, they felt a little bit almost you know, a crisis happening like coronavirus is, they kind of, yes, it was incredibly destabilizing, but we're almost ready for it because they've faced other crises before and they'll they'll face other crises again because the nature of caring is... Absolutely. I mean, this is so true. I think carers and disabled people are so used to being in a crisis and so used to having to do all that mental gymnastics to get your head around a new normal again and again and again and I think so I think mentally we are actually really well placed to deal with a crisis right now it's just that we've got a lot to lose you know because um you know I think it's scary how reliant I am on the outside world I have friends who, you know, they're very contained within their little family units and they're fine and they can homeschool and they can work from home and it's not that big a deal. And yeah, of course it's hard, you know, being stuck in a house, but, um, but they can actually just function. Okay. And Mm. we can't, and it's scary. It's scary not Mm. being able to function without outside services. I think it just, the thing that happened at the beginning of lockdown, I think for me was it just reminded me how vulnerable I am, how vulnerable I am to being, to having things taken away because I am reliant on those things. And it was interesting hearing, you know, non-disabled people and non-carers talk about never having considered so many of these things before. And every carer I've spoken to is like, yeah, no, no, we've considered all of these things before, you know, like we know what it's like oh. to, um, to be physically isolated within your own home, for instance, yeah. is, um, is, a, is something that a lot of people are familiar with. And it can be, it can be incredibly scary, you know, but that, that sense of vulnerability when, you know, you, you have a sense of norm and then it's stripped away. Um, it, it can it can be such, it can rock you to your core. How, mm. how do you, I'd love to hear a little bit if you've got any tips for dealing with that or, you know, how you have or um, is it a glass of wine or is it, you know, yoga? So or? At the moment, the thing that's been really great is just doing really tiny things for myself because anything mm. too big is going to be just unmanageable. So throughout most of lockdown, I've managed to do five minutes of exercise and five minutes of meditation first thing in the morning. Well, not first, first thing, but once I've kind of got <laughs> Arthur sorted and he's kind of 
dressed and had his teeth brushed and he's got an iPad or something to keep him occupied for a little bit. But yeah, so five minutes of just like really in that really intense hit training and not even using a video or anything, just literally doing like a minute of star jumps, a minute of push-ups. I mean, so basic, so, so basic. But the thing about it being so basic is that um, it doesn't matter if Arthur walks in in, and uh, needs me to find something on his iPad or wants something. And when he needs something, he will repetitively ask and end up in a meltdown if I don't respond to him. So I can't just sort of like his sister, just say, okay, you just have to wait five minutes. It doesn't really work like that. Mm. So he does interrupt me and it's fine. It doesn't matter. It's only a five minute thing. If he gets interrupted three times, it doesn't really matter. I just kind of keep going back to it. Mm. And the meditation is the same. If I only commit to doing five minutes... It's just, it feels like a really low commitment and that means I mm. sit down and I do it. If I was trying to sit down and do 15 minutes, it would just never happen. Those things have been really crucial. Obviously, glasses of wine as well, because <laughs> 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 let's be honest. Um, and obviously, and cooking some yummy food has really, mm. really helped as well, especially when you can't eat out or do anything else. I think we need to try things out and see how we feel both short-term and long-term with them. So obviously, I really enjoy a glass of wine. But if I had four, I would really regret it the next day. But if I had one, <laughs> I really enjoy it. And I don't regret it the next day. <laughs> so yeah, I think, yeah. you know, it's all about just, um, yeah, I guess um, reading ourselves and reading what we need um, mm. and not beating ourselves up for not, also for not doing things the way everybody else does them, even mm. another carer, you know, like we all need different things um, and different things that make us happy. And I think I think motherhood more than anything has, has taught me that. Um, I think, you know, because my version of motherhood is a little bit different and more extreme to the typical one, um, because I've got two kids that have very different needs to each other. And so I'm kind of constantly juggling their different needs as as well as my own. So I think we need to not judge ourselves for what we can cope with. We are going to compare ourselves to other people. It's inevitable. I think we need to be really realistic, though, about what we're comparing ourselves to. Often we're, we're comparing ourselves to a completely different situation. And often to a not, a not reality. A non-reality, yeah, exactly. What it looks like, my life on Instagram, is very different from the, what the, the day-to-day reality is. And, and actually something me and James were quite recently discussing is the, the need for more stories of people who are not doing very well and aren't mm. coping. And I mean, it's, it's quite hard to, to, to articulate those stories, but actually, you know, for a lot of people, like, like you said, there are moments when we all struggle. There are moments when we feel like we have completely failed our loved ones and are failing mm. at everything. And, and actually, if all we see are these positive stories of people, you know, super uplifting in some ways, but also just highlight your own failings in another way, that can be a really difficult difficult balance where oh it's I think that's really important I hope that's what I've managed to achieve with the book um I know I've heard um um another writer Satnam Sangira write talk about his experience um he has a a dad and a sister with um schizophrenia and and I've heard him say you know we talk about mental health for instance um but nobody wants to talk about the actual reality of caring for someone with a severe mental illness you know and um and I think there are things that I wrote about with my mum in the book that um, I know that friends of mine and friends of hers will read and will have never known about. Mm. Um, And it'll be interesting to hear what their reaction is. But I thought it was so important and it's important to give the full picture of my mum. My mum was a brilliant, wonderful person. And I hope that also comes across in the book, but she was also very unwell and it had a really massive effect on Mm. both of us, you know, and that's things like, you know, um, there were times where she, told me that it would be my fault if she died 
you know, that's the reality often for a lot of oh. young carers who experience that when their parent has a severe mental illness. Um, that's mm. not pretty, you know, like nobody, oh. people don't want to hear that, but I think it's actually really important that, that people, other people who have cared for somebody who has a mental illness hears because it, it is something that happens quite often. My mum yeah. didn't mean those things. We always talked about things afterwards when she was in a much more stable mental place and when she wasn't drinking and all of those other things. And I know she didn't mean them. I know she was oh. in a really terrible place when she said those things, but that doesn't mean it didn't have an effect on me either. Um, oh. And I think it's really important to talk about these things without, first of all, laying blame on the person that you're supporting, but also um, acknowledging that they happen and then they're very difficult and sometimes mm. quite traumatic as well. There is a place for this nuanced conversation around caring for someone who's not easy to care for as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember from a, a very early age, I was, I think I was very fortunate to be able to separate my mum from her illness. Mm -hmm. So that when she said, exactly, you said some of the things which a parent should never say to a child, um, you know, that that struck a chord with me because my mum said exactly the same thing, you know, and and I was able to say that's my that's the illness talking, mm. that, that that's separate. Um, and I think the, you know, I'm the same, my mum still around, love her to bits, but actually the, that balance between, yeah, caring for someone who you want to forgive and hold up as, you know, your mother and, and, and that, but actually really has a massive impact on, on your life is, mm. is a really difficult thing, especially when you're young and, yeah. and you're vulnerable um, by the nature of being young and you're still learning about the world. I think there's a really interesting imbalance in, in, in between recognizing and thankfully recognizing that there is an illness and that plays a part in it. And then there's yeah. the person and, and that balance. Yeah. Um, so you're, I'd, I'd love just to, now that you've obviously had some time to reflect um, back on your childhood, what, mm. you know, what, what would you have said to yourself as a, as a youngster or, or, and what would you say to, to maybe people who are, who are going through something similar? Well, it's interesting. I guess in those first few years when I was supporting her more and more, I think it started around 11. By the time I was 13, I would say I was definitely full-on young carer by 13. Really, between 13 and 15 were a couple of really, really difficult years. And I think if I was talking to me then, gosh, I mean, I think I would try and give myself the language to talk about it. I'd never heard the term young carer. In fact, I don't think I heard it until I was maybe 30. And I was like, oh, that's what I was doing. Yeah. You know, I mean, I knew my mum was very unwell and I knew I was helping her, but I didn't really think of myself as a carer. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about speaking about it now, because I think, you know, we need to hear these stories in order to even identify ourselves as carers. And I think that's important because I think when we have the language to describe what's happening, we can get the support we need. But also, you know, actually, at, when I was um, 15, I went to um, boarding school. And that was because my dad actually was living in America by this point. And there was nowhere that I could live with him. It wasn't going to work. And I just actually, my mother had, but when I was 14, had a number of suicide attempts. And I was kind of constantly on high alert for her all the time and constantly checking in on her and expecting to find her dead every day I came home from school and it just got to the point where I said to my dad when he came for a visit over the summer I was like actually I can't I don't think I can do this anymore I think I need to go away um, 
he was luckily in a position that he could afford to pay for me to go away to school and was very thankful that he could actually do something to help us, I think, at this point as well. Um, And, you know, it's really interesting. I look back on that time and I just think, I don't know. I don't know how I had the courage to do that. I really, really don't. I don't because I know it really did trigger um, a huge, like um, another breakdown of my mum's and, I really did think there was a chance that actually she would die because of what I'd had, I had done. And yet when I decided to do it, the rest of my extended family supported me and told me that I was doing the right thing. And I remember just thinking, oh, wow, like maybe I do matter. Maybe this does matter. Maybe actually what I've been doing is too much. Um, and so I was incredibly fortunate, fortunate at 15. I did suddenly get this kind of huge kind of swell of support. Um, and it made all the difference to me. Mm. Um, and I know that boarding school is out of reach for, I mean, just about everybody, especially in the UK, it's ridiculous, but I think what it gave me was, um, some really strong boundaries around what I did for my mum and I still considered myself a carer to my mum in the sense of like I was still on the phone to her I was still spending all my holidays with her supporting her and doing all those things but it just I think what it gave me was uh, first of all it I I felt cared for at school I felt like someone was checking that I was eating and someone Mm. was checking that I was doing my schoolwork which hadn't happened for years Um, and so my schoolwork obviously really massively improved again and all those sorts of things but I think more than that I had some boundaries with my mum And it just meant things like if I had an exam that morning, I didn't call her because I knew that I would do badly in my exam if I had a conversation with her. So I would wait until after my exam and I would call her at 6 p.m. It gave me those boundaries that allowed me to um, look after myself and my education, um, but also still support my mum in as much as I could um, as well. I think boundaries are are such an important part, um, but often non-existent I mean for so mm. many I think it's incredibly lucky and fortunate that you had that opportunity and I'm sure yeah you now I you you said that story with a massive smile on your face because I think it clearly was a time when you were released to a certain extent but I am certain along with that there was incredible heartache you know you 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 mentioned and I've been passing the the risk of deterioration um that may be in, in your mum's care and that brings with it incredible feelings of, of guilt um, and, and burden. And I think it's it's one of those which it's such a hard balance. And mm. I would say for 80% of my life, I've got the balance wrong. And, hmm. it's, and it's how do we how do we empower other people to find that balance, to find yeah. those boundaries which which make caring manageable, not even successful just just to just manageable of, yeah. yeah and I think that's the thing I think in in that is one of the reasons why I'm so grateful for the experience I had with my mum now as a parent to a disabled child I think I have better boundaries as a parent than a lot of my friends with non-disabled children because mm. of what I went through with my mum and partly that's because I don't think as a mother, she looked after herself very well. And we had a lot of conversations around that when I was a teenager, which was that, you know, she, there were a lot of reasons she got very ill. But I think one thing that we did talk about a lot, she really dived into what had happened to her. And we talked about it a lot. And I'm very fortunate in that way, because I processed a lot of it with her before she died. She was really sad, actually, that she hadn't looked after herself better. She 
had loved being a mother. It was, you know, her life's work. She adored it. She wanted to be a full-time parent and it was not to do with that necessarily, but it was to do with the fact that she did that with, with, with no attention to herself whatsoever. And I think that meant that when she did initially start getting unwell, um, it started with panic attacks, quite severe panic attacks. Um, she really, she really didn't put herself first when she should have at that point. And she really regretted it. And we talked about mm. that a lot. And she made me promise that I wouldn't do the same thing. Um, and so I right. think that I wouldn't be the parent I was now if mm. I hadn't had that experience with her. I think she really taught me through her mistakes and through her regrets what she wished she had mm. done in terms of being a parent and having boundaries. And it's nothing to do with how much you love being a parent. But I... I think, you know, she gave me something really massive when she, when she processed all of that with me. Um, and I feel really fortunate. It sounds probably a bit glib and a bit like all silver linings, but actually I really, <laughs> really genuinely feel that she gave me yeah. something quite massive. I'd love to hear a little bit about your, your support networks, both as a, as a young carer, but also as a, as a mum, a young mum. And the, the, relationship around um finding support in those who are going through something similar mm -hmm. uh, versus support in those who maybe haven't got you know you mentioned some of your your parenting friends who had more traditional um relationships i think it's really important to have a mixture in your community of of, of different kinds of friends <laughs> um mm. i think initially it was so vital for me to find other carers to speak to other parents of autistic children specifically I think the reason that's so important is because I know initially before Arthur was diagnosed and he developed perfectly typically in his first year apart from being born a month early so a month adjusted everything was very typical and it was in his second year that it became clear that things weren't developing in the same way and I think one of the things that are really difficult about that is I already had like then what a quite strong group of friends um, that had children the same age and my experiences started to just diverge completely from theirs mm. and that was an incredibly isolating feeling because I would be sitting around chatting and friends would be going oh and this happened and that happened and everyone's laughing and they know what I'm talking about and I would literally be looking at them going I have no idea what you're talking about that makes you feel incredibly lonely, I think, when your experiences are really different to everyone's around you. So I think it's really important to have a group of people either online or in person, if you can, that you can go to and you can see your experiences reflected in theirs. Mm -hmm. I think to see recognition in someone's face when you explain something that's happened in your house is so powerful. It's so oh. powerful. And I think we all need that. But that's not the only thing we need. I think we also need, we need the rest of our community. We need friends of all kinds. Um, I've made a really, really close group of friends um, through my daughter's school, actually. And it's a really small catchment area here in London. So actually, we're, we're literally all just within a few streets of each other. And it's amazing. They have been the hugest support. You know, it's just things like now, if there's a birthday party and they know Agnes is invited, they'll they'll just message me and be like, oh, well, we're going. We'll pick her up and drop her back off again, shall we? Because I know because they know that's really difficult for me with Arthur. So I think we need that kind of community as well. We need friends around us who aren't in the same situation who are willing to accommodate and make room for us and embrace mm. our family as they are but also we need people who have similar experiences yeah who can really help us feel less alone in those experiences I mean I, I feel like we could talk for for hours I think I mean you, you mentioned it at the start the kind of the shared experiences even yeah. though 
we have had very, very different experiences. Yeah, absolutely. One of the ways we like to, I suppose, come towards the end is, is ask for a story of caring um, that kind of with hindsight was, or afterwards, is just kind of hilarious to remember. The kind of, whether it be the complete ridiculousness of it, of the situation, um, whether it be because it was incredibly difficult and you can look back and smile. Um, I wonder if there's any stories either um, with your with your mum or with, with um, your son where it, it was just one of those stories which you kind of, you had to be there to believe. Oh gosh, I feel like, I feel like there's a lot of things with Arthur that falls into that category. I mean, I think the, the things that come out of your mouth as a carer, sometimes you kind of, afterwards you look back and you think, I, if I had known this is the kind of thing that would be coming out of my mouth as a carer, like as a parent, you know, I would be yeah. totally shocked. But I mean, I think, um, I think, you know, my son's, for instance, spends, I mean, a huge amount of time naked, a huge amount of time. It's a battle <laughs> to keep his clothes on. Obviously, up until now, it's been kind of not that big a deal. But obviously, as he gets older, I'm going to have to get really strict about it. Mm. Um, so there's a, there's a huge amount of nakedness. Um, I mean, even just things like the other day, my daughter really wanted me to do a video of her doing um, like little what she calls trick shots on the bed, you know, like doing jumps, flying, and we had it on slow-mo. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm yeah, doing yeah. them and she wanted to record them. And she's like, oh, and you can send them to everyone. And um, we did it and it was fantastic. She's this amazing backflip. And um, and it was all in slow motion. It was amazing. <laughs> and I realized afterwards that my son was standing naked in the doorway <laughs> the entire time on her favorite trick shot. And I was like, yeah, we uh, can't show that to anyone. <laughs> I mean, thankfully that you spotted it. I mean, I think there's lots of videos on online that have been uploaded where people haven't looked at what's in the background and gone. Oh, oh, God. oh no, oh God. I mean, just, yeah. I mean, it's, it's something I do check for because it's a regular occurrence, <laughs> but she was just like, no, Arthur's willy. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of that in this house. <laughs> and one, one bit of advice um to people maybe who are caring at the moment um other than obviously to read and buy your book uh what, what would that what would that be oh gosh i mean um be kind to yourself mm. and i know that sort of sounds so oh it's really it's really almost sounds glib to say but i think what that really means for me in practice is kind of recognizing how difficult some of these situations are Mm. allowing for those feelings um we don't necessarily need to share them with the person we're supporting because that would not be right either but I think either share them with somebody safe or just even write them down or just acknowledge them in your head um and then try and think how you would treat a friend if they were in that situation I think you know we're so much kinder to friends than we are ourselves mm. so I think if you can imagine that it was a close friend of yours who you really love going through this particular scenario in that moment and offer yourself that same compassion and kindness that you would offer them in that moment so I think everybody should do this but I think particularly as carers we need them because sometimes we're in really challenging situations and there is nobody else around you know, there's nobody else to kind of put their hand on our shoulder and be like, it's okay, you're doing all right. This is really hard. We have to be able to do that for ourselves. And and your book, Tender, do you want to just give that a little plug? 
Sure. Uh, Tender, it's out um, June 11th, which is this Thursday, um, as we're speaking, <laughs> and <clears throat> it should be available everywhere. I think it would be valuable for carers, for non-carers, for professionals. I think if you're struggling with some of the ways that you can articulate what you're going through, you might find it helpful because I've spoken to a lot of different carers and so many of them explain their situations in such beautiful ways. Um, and I would say as well that it's not all depressing. There's lots of really, really positive mm. stuff in there as well as the really real stuff. And I hope it's all in there because I think caring is, it's like everything in our life. You know, it's sometimes it's really amazing. Sometimes it's absolutely awful. And a lot of the time it's just neither of those things and just really ordinary. And I think, I hope I've kind of been able to acknowledge that in the book, all of those different aspects and I hope as well when people read it, they feel a bit less alone as well.